0: Hello, I'm Freddie Sayers, and this is Unheard. Back in March, everyone's world suddenly changed.
1: From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must
0: stay at home. So on day one of lockdown, we launched Lockdown TV, a place where we could gather experts, scientists, writers, politicians, thinkers, to try to help us understand what was going on in this strange moment and what kind of world we were going to get at the end of it. And now, due to popular demand, here we are in podcast form. Welcome to Lockdown TV. So last week, we had local elections, we had a by-election and a number of metro mayors. And there was a lot of interest at the enormous success of some of the Conservatives in the so-called Red Wall in the north of England. And one name that was talked about perhaps more than any other is the newly elected mayor of Teesside, Mr. Ben Hauschen, who was returned with a stunning 73% of the vote. This is in an area that has been historically Labour for generations. He joins us now from his office in Teesside. Hi, Ben. Hi, thanks for having me on. So, first of all, congratulations. You were re elected with 73% of the vote. Now, that, that doesn't really happen very often in this country um how did you manage
1: it um I, I don't know to be honest i mean we just had a plan we had a job to do and there's a huge amount of work that needs to go on across Teesside, darlington and hartlepool and we've made good good progress you'll have seen hopefully over the last couple of years uh, we've had the uk's largest freeport announced on the river tees we're having the treasury move to darlington obviously i was originally elected back in 2017 on the promise of saving the airport and we're introducing new flights and getting that back on its feet so I think people have seen some genuine progress and tangible differences to things that uh, were on the decline for many, many years under previous administrations. And um, I've always been of the belief that people care less about left and right politics and people that can actually make a real difference and deliver real things to people's lives. So hopefully, that accounts for a big part of it, but there's still a long way to go to make the lives of local people even better and create more jobs and opportunities. So one of the sort of narratives out of last week is that the real
0: division is now cultural. um, And that the reason the Labour Party is losing so many votes in the so called red wall, is that it culturally now represents young people, students and is obsessed with kind of fashionable ideas around gender and so on that people in those areas just aren't interested in. Do you buy into that? Do you think there's a big cultural shift taking place? I think there's
1: absolutely a huge disconnect with the Labour Party to areas like Teesside in the northeast. East. Uh, they absolutely have moved away from uh, what was culturally and traditionally in alignment with local people. Um, I think that has been impacted by the fact that we have less organised employment, we have fewer very large traditional industries in the region that we unionised. that has a huge impact as well. We've got a more diversified economy. But absolutely, I mean, we saw it in the local Hartlepool by election, the horribly transparent uh, effort by the Labour Party to appear patriotic by posting Uh, on St George's Day, the the English flag through people's doors as a leaflet. And it just actually demonstrated very, very well why they have lost touch with local people. And they don't understand why local people feel English or they feel patriotic um, about the armed forces, or actually they have a real pride about their local area. And it is very alien to them. And I think a few people in the last couple of days have commented um, and I think rightly so on this, um, it's very insular, inward looking navel gazing that the Labour Party has been going through over the last five or six years at least, uh, which I think has caused them a huge problem and they, they still really struggle with. So when people talk about sort of socially conservative or culturally conservative, do you think that
0: describes your voters then? I mean, are they, are they culturally conservative?
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's probably too much of a, a, a stretch to be too definite about this. But there is a kind of a social democrat kind of twinge to people in TSA. They are very socially conservative, uh, by and large. Uh, they are much more centrist when it comes to economic policies than potentially elsewhere in the country. But it very much feels like, as you can see, with what we've done over the last four years, people are less wedded to kind of the ideological rights and wrongs of economic policy, they're more interested in outcomes. And I think that's largely grounded in the fact, not because people don't have beliefs about those things, but we are an area that has been neglected for many, many decades by governments of both colors. And they're now more interested in delivery than they are the left and right politics of it. I mean, a great example, we nationalized an airport, um, but at the same time, I'm also proud to be a proponent of probably the most free market policy this government's come up with, which is free ports. Now people in Teesside support both of those things at the same time, because they see genuine benefits to them, which largely lead to jobs and opportunities for themselves and their children and generations to come. So it's very, very outcome driven. And that's something that local people have definitely bought into. So I want to come on to the airport in just a moment, just to finish
0: this idea of, this kind of social conservatism, because it gets talked about so much and people write so much about it. It's not social conservatism in the sense of, hesitation about gay marriage, divorce, those kinds of traditionally social conservative issues? Is it more of a patriotism and and a kind of alignment around Brexit, would you say? What exactly is the kind of core issue?
1: I mean, you know, there is there is no ill will towards anybody of different sexualities, race, gender, all of those. It's it's not that you're absolutely right. It's a realignment around Brexit, which is where we had so many Brexit leaving areas. I mean, Hartlepool was 69% leave, uh, voting area, absolutely. And there is a patriotism. I mean, let's not forget, the armed forces recruit more people from the northeast than anywhere else in the country. And there is a huge pride, both historically and um, and current, to our armed forces, to the UK, to the Queen, to the flag. I would suggest if people did some pretty serious polling on those ideas, we would probably come out close to, if not top, compared to most areas of the country. Right. So let's move to these economic things then. Um,
0: if If you had to choose, do you think it's really those, it's those local issues, it's the economic delivery that is the biggest driver more, even more than Brexit?
1: Or how would you balance those? But they're both intertwined, right? So um, obviously, locally, I think we've started to achieve some good stuff. Like I say, we've had some great announcements that we still need to solidify, Uh, you know, we need to make sure we bring the jobs and we deliver on the great announcements that the government have made. But that pairs up with what in particular Boris Johnson and this government have done. And that echoes Brexit. So what you find is people say, well, Boris did what he said he was gonna do, he delivered Brexit, we voted for Brexit, so he adhered to the results. Oh, and also locally, we've got these Tories who are also delivering on their local promises as well. So you know, if they're doing what they say they're gonna do, one of the things we always get fed back to us and repeated back to us regularly is, well, you said you were gonna do something and you did it. So we're able to demonstrate that both locally and then by definition, people associate that with Boris Johnson when it comes to one Brexit, but also in Teesside, I do think we are the poster child for levelling up, because I think you can probably point to this area and see levelling up genuinely going on compared to other areas as well. And both of those things, both local and national around delivery, absolutely played a huge, huge part in in the result, both in Hartlepool and my result on Friday. So the flagship policy of yours that you've mentioned
0: is the airport. So what exactly happened there? You you promised to nationalise it or, or bring it back into public ownership and get the uh, number of flights going to and fro
1: increasing, and then that's happened. That is that the story? Yes, fundamentally it is. I mean, the context is interesting because you had uh, it was originally publicly owned by the five local authorities that were all Labour-run. Uh, they then sold the vast majority of the shares and contr- complete control of that business to a private company without any protections which then saw that private company want to actually close down the airport and turn it into a housing estate. So interestingly enough, if you go full circle, it was a failure of the public sector, actually in the way that they introduced it into the private sector to not have the protections that required. So there was a market failure as a result of the failures of the local authorities. We then took back control of the airport We've now in, introduced a fantastic um, senior management team to be able to reinvigorate their airport. We've got more jobs being created, more flights. And there is a target within the next two, maximum three years to turn the airport back into profit and then move things on. Because one thing that I'm very keen to do is make sure whether it's the steelworks site or whether it's the airport or other things we're involved in is that we do run these things on a genuinely commercial basis. Because you know, I can tell you all sorts of horror stories that we do we don't make progress unless there is a profit motive involved and we are making progress in that kind of public private partnership but the thing that really is driving the progress is has it having that private sector involvement because they know they know how to save money and they know how to deliver quickly because that's how they get their their return so it's not as straightforward as saying one is better than the other it's as in life there is often a gray area and you often find that public sector creating an environment in which the private sector can succeed and that's not just entirely by itself it could sometimes be in partnership with one another is a very powerful tool if done correctly and you could see that as the
0: kind of perfect symbol of the kind of new Tory way of thinking so in other words you're, there's not no longer an allergy to big government or or gov- state intervention you actually see that as part of important part of the formula as long as there's a commercial
1: objective at the end of it is it something like that yeah so one of the things that um, has probably informed some of my politics around commercial delivery was actually something that milton Friedman said a long long time ago which there is no difference between the public and private sector at all in the way that they run organizations because you know they are they're all people it's the motives which which, which drive them and then ultimately the problem you find with with government organizations and policies and schemes is that once they begin to fail, they're not allowed to fail, they then get subsidized. So one of the things that we're acutely aware of is we're giving this a go. And we've been very clear with the public, for example, on the airport. We've said, this is a risk. We are going to do it because that's what you voted for me to do, but it could still fail. And so we're being very clear with the public that if it does fail, that means the airport will close. Whereas I think you often find both at local and national level, instead of taking a difficult decision to close or end something, there's a continuation of subsidy. And again, that allows the public sector to start to think a little bit more like the private sector in that, well, if this scheme is going to keep going, then you are starting to be driven by the profit motive. So, again, this kind of idea of kind of uh, conservative economics, you know, right of center economics compared to, to something else you often find when you get into the detail of that, I don't think it's as straightforward as one or the other again. Another big example of this is the freeport. That's been another
0: thing that's uh, talked a lot about in the Teesside area. So as I understand it, it's the old steelworks that is then going to be repurposed as a freeport zone where there'll be different tariffs and that will encourage people to kind of assemble goods there and uh, stuff is that is that what's happening in in
1: Redcar? Yeah, there's there's a couple of different things. So we're we're levelling the steelworks, we're getting rid of it, and we're creating what is the largest brownfield site in Western Europe, and it's right next to the River Tees, which is the deepest river on the east coast of the United Kingdom, and we're overlaying that with the UK's largest freeport. Now, the freeport is broken down into two segments. One is around customs and tariffs. So, you know, if you import something from elsewhere in the world into the free port, then you're not paying customs, tariffs, duties, VAT, et cetera, while that product or material sits within the free port, because it, in effect, is still outside of UK jurisdiction for tax purposes. Now, if you then import that product into the rest of the UK, you then have to pay the tariffs and duties and all of the other taxes at that appropriate point, which is absolutely right. Now, the interesting thing about what we've got is we've got so much land it's then not about logistics and storage, because one of the criticisms you often get with, in particular the EU free port model, is that it's a great place to um, money launder or store things like fine art and wine that gets around taxation. That's because when you look at EU free ports, they're very small, actually usually just large warehouses where you can try and get around taxes. When you've got the land, it's not about storage, it's about manufacture. So you can import raw materials at a lower cost because you're not paying the duties and tariffs and taxation. You can manufacture it into a finished product, adding value, creating good quality, skilled jobs, and then either export it to the UK market or ideally re-export it to the rest of the world on a more competitive footing with developing nations. Now, that's fine for customs and tariffs, which goes a little bit of a way to make you more competitive. But the other side of it is the tax zone status so you've got the customs processes and this is where we always get the horrible line from certainly people who want to remain in the the european union we had free ports in the united kingdom up until 2012 blah 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 it's nonsense we didn't what we've got now in the uk model is a genuine tax incentive to bring manufacturing to the uk because the tax the other tax incentives away from customs and tariffs are uncapped capital allowances for big capital structures that get built uh, the abolition of uh, business rates for a number of years, the abolition of employers national insurance contribution for a number of years, business and structures tax relief done at 10% rather than, I think, 3% at the moment. So that then incentivizes a large manufacturing or processing business to invest in the UK in a free port rather than go elsewhere in the world. And the specific example of that, sorry to go on, but it's really important, is an announcement we've already made in GE. You know, General Electric, one of the biggest companies in the world, currently have an offshore wind manufacturing facility in Cherbourg, in France. They have decided that it's more cost effective because of the tax breaks to come to Teesside and build a brand new facility rather than expand their existing facility in Cherbourg, because the free port status saves them tens of millions of pounds in capital expenditure, which means that it is more cost competitive to do that, which is exactly the type of jobs we want to create. So kind of philosophically, that's also quite an interesting one, because it's very
0: free market and and global trade focused. And it's actually about reducing barriers for global trade. But then it's also quite interventionist in that it takes the government to say, okay, we're going to choose this place to put the Freeport. Do you see that as another sort of example of the new Tory direction?
1: It's a great example so um you know in an ideal world and i've said this before i mean i think the whole of the uk should be a free port i think reducing taxation on business is huge it means that you're going to get more investment in the uk and why am i in favor of that well ultimately it leads to more jobs and more money in local people's people's pockets to look after themselves and their families because that's what we all do it for we do it to improve people's lives raise up whole communities, reduce deprivation. So irrespective of whether it's buying an airport or reducing taxation to allow a business to come to Teesside, it's all about creating jobs. Now, yeah, so ultimately we have a problem that the Treasury, certainly not Rishi Sunak, who's absolutely a massive proponent of this, but at an official level are very pure economically in that they don't believe that you could just turn the UK into a free port. So then the government had to take a decision that we want to introduce these and the way to be able to do it is through obviously the government's mandate for leveling up. And if you look at the areas, almost with uh, completely, without exception, not entirely, but without exception, free ports have been established in areas that do require leveling up, often in areas that are in the bottom quarter percentile of local authority areas by deprivation. So yes, you could argue that, you know, why pick these areas over others? But I suppose the government would go back to its democratic mandate of leveling up left behind areas.
0: Things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Often in parts of the industrial north. I mean, if the whole country was a free port, you'd you'd lose the regional advantage, wouldn't you? you? The whole idea is that you can direct investment into a particular place.
1: And that's right. So it, it allows for uh, levelling up and the raising up of areas that haven't had the support in previous years to be able to compete on an even footing. And then hopefully, you know, as there is that parity of economic um, power across the whole of the UK, hopefully in years to come, then, you know what, maybe we can then start to reduce taxation completely for everybody, because then we're all on a level playing field. The issue you've got at the moment in parts of north of England is we've actually had it the other way. Right. We've had governments of for decades who have overinvested in things like public transport infrastructure, um, huge sums of money going into places like the city of London. Actually, we've had reverse leveling up. We've leveled up the South, but they're not really concentrated on the North. Now, the government would say, well, economically, that's where you get the biggest bang for your buck, et cetera, et cetera, which I completely understand. But we are a government of the United Kingdom. We are a government that also represents the North of England. And if we didn't, if we were going to leave it completely to free market economics, then we wouldn't need a government by and large. We would be able to allow it to free market sources. Now, ultimately, you know, that's, that's where I find it interesting of where this government is. And I think that's why I fit so comfortably into a Boris Johnson administration, because there is that kind of very practical delivery focused bit that he understands, obviously, having been a mayor of London himself. So
0: the accusation, uh, which some critics will level is that this is a kind of pork barrel politics in some way that because you're buddies with Boris Johnson, and he wants to make a success story of his red wall. He's basically bunging you cash to help you do these new projects. And for example, the Treasury moving to Darlington, which is inside your constituency, Treasury North is another thing that central government can do to just help you out. Uh, How do you respond to that charge?
1: Well, one, I think it's a bizarre argument, because if you actually look in context, when I was first elected, The Tees Valley that I represent had uh, uh, six of the seven MPs, Royal Labour. All five local authority areas had been controlled by the Labour Party basically since the war. And we were getting huge sums of investment then. So it absolutely wasn't pork barrel politics. On top of that, people often, especially this was a very strange argument that I think damaged the Labour Party in the Hartlepool by-election, was that the government stood on a mandate and an election of levelling up. The areas that felt like they needed leveling up, like Darlington, like Red Car, and now places like Hartlepool, thought, actually, we buy into what Boris Johnson wants to do. We'll give him a chance. They elected him, and he's now delivering on his promises. Now people are saying, well, how dare you do that? That's just pork barrel politics. He said, well, no, he stood on the mandate of doing that. Strangely enough, people who feel like they've been left behind and haven't had the investment voted for somebody who said, I will bring you investment. And now that largely the Labour Party are complaining that he's doing what he promised. Um, And that went down very, very badly in Hartlepool. Now, yeah, I mean, absolutely. But I would also say a bit like the Freeport model, these areas do deserve money, they do deserve support that other areas of the country have had for a long, long time. And it just so happens to be that it's the Conservative Party that are articulating a message that is cutting through to voters. And we now have a Conservative government that can actually do something about it.
0: So in a way, it's an eminently pragmatic decision from the voters, because they see Boris Johnson's in charge, he clearly wants to make a success of this. If they return a Labour mayor or Labour MP, then they're probably not going to get there very much in the next few years. Do you think there's a sort of just a a pragmatic drive rather than any big ideological affiliation behind these decisions?
1: I think there is a there is a significant um, amount of it is very pragmatic. And I've been very clear with both the local MPs and with Boris and the wider government that they now need to deliver on this promise because I am a huge believer that a lot of people who voted Conservative, including in Hartlepool, have lent the Conservative party their votes on the promise of more investment and a better future. And they will be judged on that at the next general election. And if they have failed to be able to demonstrate that levelling up, then those people are not Conservative voters. You know, These are not converts who are gonna vote Conservative for the rest of their lives. They will very easily not vote for us again if we do not fulfill those promises. So if
0: you had to kind of summarise what the vision is for the tea side then because there you know a lot of people in the kind of media center lyrically talk about these post-industrial towns and how they're down at heel and we get these endless uh, reports of you know abandoned high streets and uh, some people argue that there's a sort of nostalgic desire there to to go back or to to rediscover lost communities and and um, what you're what you seem to be saying is actually they're quite future facing or they they're quite keen on a on, on a new identity for the area, quite high tech. Is, is that right that the, the
1: tea side doesn't want to go backwards? No, it absolutely doesn't. I mean, on the doorstep just last week, people were telling me, we want you to pull down the steelworks. I mean, my labour opponent wanted to keep it as a monument and people thought it was crazy. And yes, we have nearly 200 years of steel and iron making heritage on side, But people are saying, Well, that's fine. And it's something we should be proud of. But that doesn't put food on my table. and It doesn't help my you know son or daughter build a life and career in our region. We need to move forward and what we can do, and it's about pairing it with that pride. It's saying, this is what we did. We can use a lot of those skills and a lot of that expertise and what we have in this area and we can future proof it, which is why I'm confident that if we continue in the direction that we're going in 10 years time, side will be synonymous as the UK, if not potentially one of the world centers for low carbon green technologies in the same way that you know parts of the US and LA are, and Silicon Valley are known for IT. I genuinely think that's something we can do because again, it's the frustration of the national media, right? You know, They don't understand the region. They go to these lazy stereotypes. Often when you go on things like the BBC and ITV, they will use the silhouette of the steelworks. What they don't do is they don't go down the road to people like Double Eleven, an amazing IT company in Middlesbrough who develop all of the games for Microsoft on the Xbox. That um, that are there, you know, you know, their leading Xbox releases for every single Christmas. I mean, some of the top games in the world were developed right here in Middlesbrough by Double Eleven, a developer for Microsoft. You've got Merlin Flex in Hartlepool who developed the microchip, uh, microchip technology that went into Sebastian Vettel's Formula One winning car, it goes into the Brimstone missiles, goes into the uh, helmets for the RAF. I mean, I could bore you with a whole list of futuristic things that T side is doing. But again, that often gets ignored because we have people from outside the area that don't understand it and go to lazy stereotypes. Now that by itself is a problem because then that's a self-fulfilling prophecy of this negativity in this backward looking region. What we've now started to do is talk more positively about it. We've challenged people when they go to those lazy stereotypes. And now we're getting new people from across the world saying, this is a place we want to invest and it's new technologies and they see us as a forward moving place. So it's a very multifaceted thing and one of the things I've tried to do in the last couple of days, which I absolutely have done, is just stayed away from a lot of the lazy commentary. Because, I mean, the few things that I have read about Teesside and Hartlepool, you know, 90% of it is wrong. It's just people, commentators having to fill column inches, not really understanding what they're talking about. How has the last year affected it? We've,
0: it's been a weird year, uh, mostly in lockdowns. I guess that new airport hasn't been doing very many flights for the past year, even though it's just been relaunched. It doesn't feel like there's been a negative electoral effect from the fact that Boris Johnson has just, you know, shut down life for the past year. What's been your sense of how that's played out on the doorstep?
1: Um, It has been a challenge. Now, a lot of people locally would say, well, you know, had we not saved the airport, it would definitely have closed because of COVID. Whereas now they can see, well, actually, there is still a life for it. And actually, it was probably the right thing to buy. Otherwise, we would be without it. It's absolutely been a challenge in Teesside. We've lost just over 12,000 jobs as a result of COVID. So we're also not just battling to build a brighter future, but we're having to now find opportunities for people who've lost their jobs. Now, again, if you try and but can I just say that, Can it. I ask?
0: Do they? Is there any resentment on the doorstep against the government for having pursued such a, a sort of lockdown-based strategy? Or no. it wouldn't look like it from the numbers, I guess
1: yeah you know, i think i think by and large obviously there are always exceptions but by and large people recognise that it was a you know it was an unprecedented situation the government have done what it's what it can people have, have got their views on how the initial reaction to coronavirus and the lockdowns et etc happened but again even if they don't agree with the government and boris they will turn around and say well would it? i mean the one thing we always get on the doorstep is Can you imagine what would have happened if Jeremy Corbyn was in charge? Yes, Boris has made mistakes. Yes, it's been difficult, but he's done the best with what he can do. And then that often gets paired with, but look how fantastic the vaccine rollout has been as well. So there has been a boost, absolutely, because of how well the government have handled the vaccine rollout. And you see it every day, another, another shot, you know, people getting their second vaccine. That does give people a lot of good feeling. And then you also get the fact that, you know, we're moving down the roadmap pubs all be outside or open. So all of this leads to a more optimistic future that then people feel better about, you know, had we had an election, uh, you know, middle of last year in the middle of COVID, would we have the same result? You know, probably not. Would we have still won? I think so. But it would have probably been closer. So absolutely, it's had an impact.
0: So those stories, the Westminster stories, like for example, all the wallpaper in number 10 Downing Street, who's been paying for that? Um, you know, stories of kind of lobbying, uh, complicated things involving David Cameron, has that penetrated through to the to the voters in Teesside, do you find? Or are they just not really interested?
1: So it's penetrated to the extent that people ridicule it, they ridicule the media for concentrating on it. They ridicule the picture of Keir Starmer in the shop with his roll of wallpaper, they just think it's a very London centric, you know, a lot of people criticise the BBC, it's a very London centric BBC thing to concentrate on. When we're going through a pandemic we've got the vaccine rollout we're losing jobs we want more investment and yeah it might sound like a cliche but you know what there is a reason boris johnson says we're concentrating on the people's priorities because he knows that that resonates he knows that people just see that as yet another westminster bubble thing rightly or wrongly and they think they they just turn off they just turn off from it actually i had a number of people on the doorstep who you know i don't i wouldn't necessarily go this far myself but a number of people said well it's downing street we should absolutely be using taxpayers money because it's a UK piece of history. It's something that we should be proud of. So it wasn't straightforward. It wasn't like, oh, you know, who paid for this, that and the other, you know, people don't like that at the best of times. They certainly don't like it as you're coming out of a pandemic. So no, I can absolutely guarantee everybody it had zero cut through whatsoever. I have to ask this question,
0: even though I have a feeling you're uh, not going to answer it in in an obvious way. Is there a a kind of national political future for Ben Houshen? we talked about uh, your kind of overall way of thinking. I saw a, a thread on Twitter a few days ago talking about Haushianism and how Halshianism uh, <laughs> is the thing that the Labour Party needs to fear. You're the kind of you're the, the man at the moment. Um, would you consider a national political career?
1: Well, as, as I said earlier, there's a lot of column inches that have to be filled, and I actually read. I think there was an article in the in the Guardian about it, and it's just. It's just people having to fill column inches, and you know, next week people will move on to the next best thing. I've, as I said, I've got a huge job to do here. I'm, I stood on a mandate of having started some fantastic work and wanting to see it through, and I can honestly say to everybody, um, this is the best job that I could ever dream of. It is the privilege of a lifetime to be able to represent the area where I was born, raised, grew up, met my wife, got my first job. So you no, know, I'm just really happy to be re-elected and uh, back in the office, getting on with the job. Have you spoken to Boris? Has he congratulated you? Yes. To- Yes, he was very, very kind to, to call me. Unfortunately, uh, my result was um, a little bit too late, so he had to fly back from Hartlepool to London. But he did call me, actually, as soon as he got off the plane, which was very kind of him, and it was very generous. Thank you, Ben, the newly re-elected mayor of Teesside in the north
0: of England, telling us about Haussianism, the kind of conservatism that he represents that seems to be connecting with voters informally formerly left-leaning Labour areas. This was Lockdown TV. Thanks for joining. ACAST
1: powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.